We're beginning a um, six-part vision series, and uh, I didn't like it last week, so I threw it away, and we're going to utilize 1 Thessalonians as our text for two reasons. One, the Word of God is more important and more trustworthy and reliable than my picture of vision, and because the Apostle Paul takes for granted, meaning it speaks indirectly about all the aspects of our vision in every chapter of most of his books, as far as I can tell. And so we're going to use 1 Thessalonians, and I'm going to preach through it in a relatively normal way, but highlighting the three elements of our vision, which are worship, community, or spiritual friendship, faithful presence. If you have your Bible, we're looking at probably the, the earliest letter of Paul's that we have. Uh, it's to the Thessalonians. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, that's Silas's Latin name, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before God and Father, before our God and Father, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the word of the Lord. Churches need mission statements and vision statements, and yet I imagine you have experienced a church that um, was a little more about their vision than the word or caring for one another or um, being faithfully present out in the world. So I want to tell you how I do vision stuff. Uh, may not be interesting to some of you, but to others it's very interesting, and I hope to convince you of why it's important to have mission and vision statements. They're necessary, and yet they should, for a church, they should absolutely, 100% revolve around love God and love people, right? That's how Jesus described the teaching of Scripture and the Good News summarized. It, it's repeatedly in the Scriptures, and that's our mission. And w one thing I've been saying frequently since March is the mission is the same. How we do it is different. The reason it's important to define it in a local context is it's supposed to be a local guide to our church's role, and a local guide to discipleship. So what does it look like for you to become a more and more mature lover of God and neighbor? I think our mission and vision statement are supposed to be a guide in that. Um, from 2003 to 2007, I worked for a man named Scott Sauls, who uh, writes terrific books and preached vision as effectively as anyone that I'd ever heard. At the same time, he and I didn't always get along perfectly. Uh, his books are excellent, excellent preacher. 
And I learned how to do vision from him, but we didn't always get along, partly because I really, really, really needed to grow up as a 20-something youth director. Then, from uh, 2007, no, 2008 to 2013, I worked for a man named Zach Eswine. Also excellent books. I think it's interesting. I, I consider myself incredibly blessed to have served under such uh, dynamic men that I could learn from. My pastoral mentoring is about as good as it gets. Zach, Scott, both won awards in their books. Zach is not a vision guy. He loved playing with vision language, but he didn't preach it like Scott. He preached the Bible very slowly. What I did when I got to the barn was in 2014, did a very short series on why gather, because that's the word for, new for church in the New Testament. It's not a building, it's gathering. Anywhere the saints are gathered, online or in person, is the church. In 2015, I did a series uh, that some of you deeply loved because people don't often do series on it, which is about Presbyterian government. Elders, deacons, trustees, and members. In 2016, we did a series on the law, focusing on the Ten Commandments, because they're a guide to life, and we're going to be a gathering that takes seriously the word and the teachings of God. 2017, did a series on love, using 1 Corinthians 13, the definition by description of love that Paul gives, because those things, in my opinion, are the foundation of how you then build a vision. Then we started using the language of worship, community, and faithful presence. And as I look at Thessalonians, this odd, very quickly, almost hastily uh, built house church, if you go to the book of Acts chapter 17, you hear that over three Sabbaths, Paul and his companions taught in the synagogues, and the, the church was built. Now, before that, Paul wanted to go um, west twice, and it says the Holy Spirit kept him from going. And I love that we don't know anything more about that after I got over the fact that I really wish I knew more about that. I think what happened is they prayed together, and then they talked. And it seemed to them that God did not want them to go into Asia. And he did not want them to go into Bithynia, although later he goes into Bithynia. And he ends up going to um, Philippi, and then to Thessalonica, and then to Berea, and then to Athens. In each place, incredible fruit of their labors. And because, partly because Paul wasn't able to stay with the Thessalonians, he wrote them this letter quite quickly. This is probably the first letter of Paul's in terms of chronology. And as I read it, I, I ended up highlighting it uh, in terms of community. Verse 1 and verse 6 and verse 7 are about community. Verse 8 and 9 are about faithful presence. And the end of verse 1 and verses 2, 3, 4, 5, and 10 are about worship. Because Paul indirectly teaches us that that's what the people of God do. They spend time corporately and individually praising and making much of God and of his grace. They talk with one another. They rely on one another. They support one another. One of the reasons I think that the Thessalonican church flourished so much was because uh, Paul was run out of town viciously by uh, some angry religious people, not followers of Jesus. And the Thessalonicans the Thessalonian church supported him. They eventually had to bribe city officials. That wasn't their plan. I think that's what had to happen in order uh, for them to be, stop being persecuted. But because they supported Paul and because they suffered together, their faith became so strong so quickly. 
Paul's habit, it says in, in Acts, would be to go into the synagogues and reason, utilizing the scriptures. And then he's run out of town, and uh, the Thessalonian church was built. And I wonder, when it comes to worship, what part you like the most. And I'm curious, and, and you can tell me if you want, but the, one of those pictures is somewhat dark. That's prayer. There's obviously a guy not in corporate worship playing his guitar out on a mountainside. There's the text and the sacrament. And I want to offer um, to you that all of these things matter. And all of these things are things that you can enjoy on your own, and yet you'll be missing out if you don't also enjoy them in corporate worship. From almost the beginning of the story of the people of God, one day in seven is set apart for our encouragement, our strengthening, our rest, and celebration of God and who he is. The gathering of followers of Jesus is full of joy. Even through the suffering that they were experiencing. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. What's joy? How would you define it? Very important idea in the New Testament. Except it's not an idea. I think it, joy is a convinced mind, a warmed heart, and a self that is so confident in who Christ is that we follow, regardless of what the culture encourages, regardless of our own tendencies, regardless of how much we sinfully long to be in charge of ourselves. The joy that Paul's talking about is a convinced mind that these things are true, a warmed heart, and a self so confident that it follows wherever led. And this flows from the Trinity. And, and the Trinity is such an, um, a challenging thing to preach on well. As an example, every solid theologian I know says, don't make a metaphor of it. And yet, I'll bet you're making a metaphor to think about the Trinity right now. Instead, I think we're to be grasped by it, and most of the teaching on it is assumed. In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit's mentioned twice in chapter 1 alone. Verse 4, Paul says, For we know, brothers, for we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. That word can challenge us a little bit, get into Arminian and Calvinistic discussions and things like that. And what we miss sometimes when we run into those conversations too quickly is that that is a move of pursuing love. That is first and foremost what that word means, somewhat regardless of what else it may mean. See, God didn't need us. He didn't create people because he was lonely. He was always in the community of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Therefore, creation is an overflow of love. How do you access the joy that Paul's talking about here? This is one of the ways to worship with friends. And I know it feels real challenging because you're still in your pajamas, maybe. I don't know when you get dressed. And yet the Holy Spirit continues to bind us together and give us joy. And that doesn't mean we feel happy all the time. Joy is a convinced mind, a warmed heart, and a self-confident to continue to follow 
Jesus, even as things feel so differently. And our corporate worship is imperfect because our church is imperfect. Our sermons are imperfect. Our music style. Do you know that there are between 1,200 and 30,000 kinds of Christianity? Depending on how you, where you're looking and how you, uh, what you call the denomination. And in the spectrum, we are really medium in a lot of ways. Some of you wish we would sing more. Some of you wish we would sing less. Some of you wish my sermons were shorter. Many people at the barn have actually asked me to preach longer. And I know some of you are like, please don't. That's fine, I'm not going to. I really, 25 minutes is really kind of my goal and my wheelhouse. <laughs> but I ask you this because corporate worship is really important. It's, it's how we access the joy that Jesus purchased for us and the Holy Spirit mediates to us. It's not the only way. Neither then are any of the elements of worship, except for the sacraments, supposed to be enjoyed. I was saying it backwards. Let me say it forwards. All the things that we do on Sunday morning are not only for received joy in corporate worship, they're also models throughout the week of ways to practice the kingdom in our lives, except for the sacraments. What's your favorite part? You like the call to worship? We usually use uh, the Psalms. I'm playing around with that a little bit because the online-only experience is so different. Do you like the confession? Some of you do, some of you don't. We do a healing prayer once a month. Prayers of the peoples when we attempt to collect together our anxieties and hopes, our frustrations and anger, our various medical issues, and we hold them up to the Lord, asking him to tend to them. Do you like singing? Do you like the sacraments the best? Do you like the sermon? So this is a double encouragement. The one that you like, that's a gift from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has, uh, in its providence, made that very accessible to you. The one that you struggle with is an opportunity for you to pray with someone about. It's not, or, or on your own. Ask the Lord to give you the joy of that practice because he created it for his glory and your, your good might be an opportunity to talk with someone. And if you've never talked with someone that likes the thing that you don't like, I'd be happy to connect the dots for you. I have a pretty good sense of who likes those things and who doesn't like them. Not, I will not connect you with someone who doesn't like the thing that you don't like. And the reason I say that, it might sound like a weird application, is you could grow, and so can I, in the elements of corporate worship and how they connect to our mind and to our heart. If you'd like to read, about any of this, uh, I'd be happy to. We have books on almost all of them, either separately or together. The gathering is both full of joy because the Holy Spirit gives it, and we practice these kingdom practices. Our mind is more fully convinced, our heart is more warmed, and our self is that much more confident. And then what happens? We go out on mission. We have work to do in the world, in the kingdom, friends. It is to be, our worship is to be Trinitarian, cruciform, and joyful. And by cruciform, I mean that's our longing, right? To be formed like Christ. Our singing is to reflect the whole story of the scripture. There are churches that will only sing the Psalms. They don't even use instruments. I told you we're kind of in the middle on the spectrum. There are churches that sing much longer and much more repetitively than we do. Our hope 
and I know that Bill and, and Dan are principal worship leaders and the ones who do most of the song picking, we long to sing the whole story of Scripture. Worship. Our vision is also community. We long to create space to hear one another's stories and to wrestle together with the stories of Scripture and how we understand them and how we're grasped by them. I'll talk about this a lot more next week, but your stories are essential to the growth of the other people in this church. I believe that. All of the yous, just about, in the New Testament are plural. So Paul's fully expecting that alongside him and the other leaders, they grow. When he says, and you became imitators of us, he's not speaking to an individual, he's speaking to the whole house church. Then these things push us out to be faithfully present in our lives and jobs and neighborhoods. I got that term from James Davidson Hunter, who's an Orthodox writer who wrote a book, and the title of the book alone is inspiring and a description of Christian mission. It's called For the Life of the World. We worship because it honors God, but we also worship because it fills us with strength and the ability to go and serve the neighbors in our life. We do these things because of obedience to Jesus and to text, but also because of the hope that the Holy Spirit will, in partnering with our worship and our community, pursue people in love, call them to himself. In verses 8 and 9, Paul says, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Maybe 15, 20, 25 people at this part, at this point. But their care for Paul and his companions, their interactions with city officials, their uh, clear love for Jesus that was quick because the Holy Spirit had preceded Paul in that moment. I think that's why he was discouraged from going to Asia, was that the people were ready in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. We long to be a church that worships so joyfully cares for one another so well, and is so faithfully present that if we left, Simsbury would notice. And what would they say? Boy, they sure like to sing. And maybe they think that's odd, but they know it. They know that that's part of our joy. Many, many people in, in, in all of the Farmington Valley, even people attending from Massachusetts, in all, in all of our areas, we would hope that our joy was so clear in worship that people noticed because worship is an incredibly important part of evangelism. Community. At some point, you're going to get sick. And our deacons are excellent at leading us in caring for one another. And people are going to notice. So if our church disappeared, hopefully someone would say, you know, they believed some weird things. Like that a first century carpenter is going to come back on a cloud eventually. But when my neighbor was sick, they were there all the time. And eventually, I hope that our faithful presence is noticed. Hopefully, if we were to cease existing as a church, they would say, you know, they really worked hard to both assist those who were trying to end sex trafficking and reach out to victims also. That was part of their mission. And I'm not sure about Jesus, but I thought that was a pretty good mission. I love that Paul says so that we need not say anything. 
I think um, perhaps you're familiar with this quote. It's an imperfect quote, and it's overused sometimes. It's attributed, uh, well, there are two different saints that might have said it. I think it was probably St. Francis. Preach the gospel to all nations. If necessary, use words. Now, the imperfectness of that is to evangelize, words eventually must be part of the equation. But we get it at a gut level that when we're so joyful, we care for neighbors so well, we consistently show up with a food pantry and with adopting a social worker, like we did about two years ago, that our faith is actually visible to other people and they're interested in it. Brian, will you jump ahead to uh, the picture of the dog? Do I need to say anything about how my daughter feels about what we're doing? Or is it quite clear? I think it's clear, right? You need not say anything. That's our hope. We're trusting Jesus that he's growing us up in our worship and community and our efforts in, in this neighborhood that we sometimes will not need to say anything for people to be intrigued. And for Paul... And this is so it's just mind-blowingly interesting to me how this is both missed and misunderstood and, and misappropriated in, in heretical ways. The end times that Paul references at the very end of chapter 1, and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. For a student of Scripture, and for those of you that understand the Bible, you understand that waiting in a New Testament sense, in a Bible sense, is not passive it's, it doesn't mean do nothing. It means do the work of the saints until he returns because it's our job to pursue his shalom everywhere that we are until he returns. Hope, it's not optimism. It's confidence in who he is and, and confidence that we don't naturally have that it's our job and not his until he returns. When Paul references Jesus' return, he's expecting it to motivate us to worship and good deeds. And the reason I talk about how it gets heretical is there's so many people that listen to end times teachers because they think that one of them or two of them might actually know when Jesus is going to return, even though Jesus said to not listen to those teachers. But then the thing that really bothers me is not so much listening to bad teachers, though that makes me sad. I know I can't uh, fix that. Well, maybe I can. Stop it. I don't know. Did that work? What really bothers me is we're missing out on the work that he's asked us to do. I'm going to have a guest preacher come in, a man who works for the Amira House, um, a house that takes women out of trafficking and gives them psychological care, vocational care, spiritual care. And he's going to preach on Acts chapter 1 because when Jesus rose into heaven, he said, it's our role to be the church until he returns. There are places in your life and in your family, in your place of business, in your neighborhood where there is either an absence of shalom or a violence against it. You get to bring that peace. You get to be an agent of reconciliation, neighbor love. As uh, I've been using a specific app that connects with videos to work out since March. Um, and 
occasionally the trainers will get very life coachy. And it's pretty funny because they're good at it. And a number of months ago, one of the trainers says, you know what's better than discipline is purpose. And I loved that. And then she said, my purpose is to do amazing stuff. And I think she meant like jumping off of cliffs and skydiving and things like that. And I was like, wow, that, would, that was so good. Until it wasn't. This is why a vision statement is essential. Not only for our church so that we understand locally who we are and what we're about, but for you. My friend, I know that it seems like God has not given you a great purpose. And yet in the kingdom, your worship, spiritual friendship, and faithful presence is incredibly powerful and sometimes has effects you don't even know about. In 2014 and 2015, a woman from the church went and prayed in motel parking lots and took notes. And I'm not going to use her name because I did not ask her permission before using this illustration. And about three years later, those notes were used, unbeknownst to her, to change the legislation surrounding what hotels and motels do with their employees with respect to trafficking. Every employee of a hotel or a motel in Connecticut must now receive anti-trafficking training because of a woman here who went and sat in the parking lot and hand-wrote notes and prayed. And she didn't know for like five years. And I don't know if that will happen with you, but I do know there is just as much purpose in your worship, your engagement with your spiritual family, and your faithful presence where you find yourself. And this is why you would actually give to the church, because you believe in it as an institution, a gathering of peace and the love and reconciliation of God. More importantly than that, though that is important, that's why you get involved. And I know that tell, encouraging you to get involved here right now seems odd. Well, it's a great time to reset. If you're not going to be worshiping with us in person, that's totally fine. This is an ex exceptionally good time for you to consider how to get involved specifically with corporate worship. You're like, I can't do anything musical. Me neither, but I have a role here, and so do you. Because God has given you purpose through the kingdom that Jesus purchased for us. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we long to be a formed people. We long to reflect Jesus back to our own hearts, which are anxious and doubt, and to the watching world. Would you guide us in doing so in our worship, in our spiritual friendships, and in our faithful presence? Amen.